North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome to the first episode of 2024 on the Impossible State podcast at CSIS. My name is Victor Cha. I'm Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS and Professor at Georgetown University. And today for our first episode of 2024, we're going to look at Japan and in particular relations between Japan and DPRK with our very special guest, Dr. James Brady. Uh, let me properly introduce James for our viewers and our listeners. He is currently Vice President for Geopolitical Risk and Japan Analysis Lead at the global CEO advisory firm Taneo. His analysis has been featured in a wide uh, spectrum of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, CNN. Uh, James has studied and um, taught, I guess, at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland, Georgetown, Johns Hopkins Sice and Leiden University in the Netherlands. He did his PhD in international public policy from Osaka University. Um, uh, he's taught at several universities in the Osaka Kansai area, authored one book on the political economy of Japan, and you are now working on a second book, is that right? I am. Um, I'm looking um, similar to the work that we do for our Taneo clients on uh, geopolitical risk and Japan and a sort of primer for the interested um, C-suite executive who wants to really get to the core of, of contemporary events in Japan. Wow. So that's my, that's my project for 2024. Great. Sounds very, sounds very exciting. Um, well, anyway, James, thanks so much for, uh, for being on the show. I know that you are a listener and follower of the show, so we're really glad that you would uh, you join us. I am. I'm, I'm delighted. I'm honored to be invited. Thank you, Victor. Um, thrilled to be in the studio, seeing we've just been admiring the um, the vintage radio that you have there. <laughs> um, I know you've had some great guests on recently, Katrin Fraser-Katz, uh, Yuki Tatsumi, and so on. So big footstep, footsteps to be following in, but very excited to be here. Well, to we're speak very with you. happy, very happy to have you have you with us. Um, so uh, I think for our audience, why don't we start out first by focusing on Japan. I know you follow uh, the domestic situation very closely uh, in your work and uh, get from you your take on how the Kishida government is doing or how Japan is doing in general at the start of 2024 when they had the sort of a double whammy of uh, unfortunate events, mm. the, the earthquake and then uh, the accident, mm -hmm. the plane accident. So what is your how do you, what is the situation right now? How do you think the government is handling it? How have they been assessed? Have they been assessed to be handling it well? So it's it's been really a very difficult start to the year mm -hmm. um, in Japan. Uh, the context, of course, was that in December this massive political funding scandal broke around the LDP, uh, particularly the Abe faction. Um, Kishida's uh, poll numbers had already been low. They'd been around 30% um, after the revelations came out or the allegations. Uh, they went down to around the low 20s. Some of, uh, some of the uh, uh, polls even had them in the teens, uh, which was a, a, a pretty bad position to be beginning the year from anyway. 
Then, as you say, these two tragic um, events, first of all, the large magnitude 7.6 earthquake on the Noto Peninsula on the uh, Sea of Japan uh, on the 1st of January. And then, uh, somewhat in connection with that, on the 2nd of January at Haneda Airport, a Japan Coast Guard small aircraft, which was participating in the relief efforts uh, for the earthquake, entered the runway. Uh, there was a, a crash involving a, a large passenger airline. Um, unfortunately, uh, five of the six uh, Coast Guard aircraft crew uh, died in the incident, but sort of miraculously, about 400 people all got off the the aircraft safely, so that was one, one small uh, positive. Um, Kishida has obviously responded um, as the, a national leader um, and, and coordinated um, the, the response and rescue teams. Uh, there has been some criticism around, around that, but I think overall he's done a, a moderately good job um, of responding to, uh, to those situations. I think he's, he's already looking ahead to what's going to be a very challenging year for him um, and really a decisive year uh, for his political future. Uh, with the LDP's uh, leadership election coming up in September. And he's also got some challenges on the foreign policy front as well. So it's a tough year. It's been a tough beginning. Uh, he's, he's starting from a, a difficult spot. Um, I haven't even mentioned the economy yet. We can, we can get into that as well. Um, I guess the positive way to look at it is that things can probably only get better from here for Kishida. So maybe there's some comfort for him in that. Yeah, so you mentioned the economic situation. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about sort of the economic outlook. What are the challenges mm -hmm. going forward? So the, the Japanese economy has been relatively resilient in the last few years. It, it, it's had a steady growth. Um, it experienced growth in the past 12 months of around 2%. That's slowing now to about 1%. Most of the forecasts put it at in the low 1%. Um, so it's it's... Modest but steady growth. The big issue has, has been recently inflation and the cost of living crisis, or cost of li living pressures for uh, consumers. Inflation this time last year in January was, I think, 4.2%, which was its highest rate in 40 years. We think about Japan as a deflation nation. Mm. Well, not when you have 4.2% uh, inflation on, uh, annualized on the month. That has slowed this year, during the course of the past year. It's now, I think, in January, this, this month, it will probably be about 2.5%. And where consumers have been experiencing real wage declines, there is now an outlook that in spring of this year that large corporations will offer wage hikes probably averaging 4% or above. So they will be above inflation raises um, if, if inflation continues, let's say, around the 2 2.5% level. Also, in June, uh, Kishida has announced one-off tax cuts, um, about 30,000 yen in income tax and then 10,000 in local tax cuts uh, for every working person or, or their family member, slightly more generous tax cuts for lower-income households. So we will see come the middle of the year, I think, uh, a little bit of an uptick, uptick for consumers. They should start feeling some of the pressures ease, easing as inflation decelerates as their income increases. There are still some risks ahead. I suppose the, the big risk for the Japanese economy um, 
is really the Bank of Japan is likely to raise interest rates for the first time in 17 years. Mm. Now, it's likely to be only a very minimal uh, rise from minus 0.1% back to zero initially. It's really not going to be very significant, but it's been a long time since there has been any rise in interest rates. We know from past efforts to raise the consumption tax rate that Japanese consumers can get quite uh, frightful around these uh, uh, these incidents. So it's not entirely clear what the impacts of that will be for the economy. Um, externally, there are, of course, concerns about demand from the Chinese economy, which is decelerating. So uh, they'll be buying fewer Japanese exports. Similarly, in the US, if what might happen there. Um, so it's it's a mixed picture, but I think if uh, if Kishida is looking at a balance of potential headwinds and potential tailwinds, I think uh, overall he will consider the economy is more likely to be a potential tailwind for him in the year ahead, and it will probably improve. I think, uh, particularly from summer onwards. So, um, sort of taking this to the politics, then. Um, so it's a very rough start to 2024 but some possibly good things coming down the road. Does that mean that you think he's, he's that there's uh, less chance of sort of a snap election? Or, or is it possible that if the economic response to the tax cuts are good in the summer that he might call a snap election then or wait till September? Or So I think, I think the scandal really has ended any possibility. I think, I think by the end of last year, it was already looking unlikely that there would be a, a near-term snap election because the poll numbers were already down to 30%. So now that his cabinet approval ratings are, are at 20% um, and the LDP's party support numbers have fallen as well, um, there is, I think, no appetite um, really to go to the polls. The LDP would inevitably lose seats. So that's, I think, not on the agenda in the first quarter. Um, into the second quarter, Again, it's, I, I don't think it's likely. I think um, there will be at least one by-election in April. Um, mm -hmm. The LDP will probably lose that um, because the seat was formerly held by a former leader of the Abe faction who will be linked to the, the money politics scandal now deceased. Um, and so I think there could be a voter backlash um, in, in that by-election. Really, I, I, I think Kishida is probably fairly safe right through in his own position right through to September. Mm. And if he wins re-election, I guess then maybe he would get a bit of a bounce and then he would consider calling uh, a snap general election later in the year. I personally think there is a very good chance he'll face a strong challenge in that leadership election. Um, there's been sort of one candidate has been uh, hinting that she will put herself forward, Sanae Takeuchi, the, the uh, Shinzo Abe aligned um, sort of right winger. Uh, there are a couple of uh, reform candidates getting mentioned now in, in relation to the faction scandal. So uh, Shigeru Ishiba is one, a former defense minister, uh, Shinjiro Koizumi, son of the former prime minister, uh, still only 42, perhaps a little bit too early for him. And then Taro uh, Kono, who is a faction member, but uh, generally seen as a bit of a maverick. And uh, so there, there could be a reform candidate come forward. I think there is also a possibility that uh, Taro Aso, who is kind of the kingmaker now within the LDP, if he switches his backing from Kishida to someone else, uh, Toshimitsu Motegi, 
the party general Secre secretary general, party number two, uh, also clearly interested in becoming prime minister. I think Asso's vote in this could be could could be quite influential. Could really swing it come September. And if we do see a uh, Kishida losing, someone else stepping forward, then you're looking at a honeymoon period just as Kishida himself did in, in late 2021, then I think we have a, a higher possibility that there could be a snap general election. Um, if we don't see an election this year, the current lower house can only, uh, uh, the mandate runs through until fall of 2025. So you're getting to a position where the prime minister in 2025, if they haven't called an election, will be at the mercy of events because uh, the, the clock will be ticking down at that point. So I think there is, um, there's, there's definitely an incentive um, to maybe go a little bit early. And I think probably the end of the year is, is certainly more likely than the, the first half, first three quarters. Mm -hmm. Okay, quite interesting. Um, uh, so clearly a lot going on there and this, this scandal has far reaching implications for LDP leadership and for the balance of power between the factions. Um, with Asa looking clearly like a winner coming mm. coming out of all this, um, uh, um, so um, but let me let me uh, move on to a um, anyway that that was very interesting. We, you know we had talked about this on the show towards the end of last year, and so the situation has evolved quite a bit since then. But let me ask you um, about another topic we like to talk about. Uh, on the show in D.C. these days, and this is sort of the Camp David trilateralism. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked a lot about this on the show from the Korean and the U.S. perspective, mm -hmm. but um, given how closely you follow the situation in Japan, would love to hear sort of your views on trilateralism from um, the Japan's viewpoint, like the level of support for it. Um, are there actually, are there any opponents to it in, 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 in any regard? And are there any concerns about sustain, sustainability of this? So I think just to just to connect um, our last discussion to that topic, Kishida's domestic political capital is very limited. His room for maneuver domestically and, and breakthrough policy initiatives is very, very narrow. His party is in turmoil. Uh, the electorate is very skeptical now of the LDP. Uh, he's tried giving uh, giving away money. He's tried tax cuts, and that actually proved to be quite unpopular with the electorate because they saw it as a kind of cynical ploy. So, Kishida has very little domestic wiggle room, um, but he needs to do things to raise his popularity. And I think, knowing that he is very comfortable in the role of uh, global statesman of diplomat, he was Japan's longest-serving foreign minister of modern times uh, under Shinzo Abe, and he he will be looking, I think, to foreign policy areas to potentially boost his, his domestic standing. I think the a, a key area there will absolutely be the trilateral um, and the outworkings of what was agreed at, at Camp David. Um, always worth saying that the, the Japanese side were, were very hurt, very skeptical when the 2015 uh, agreement on the comfort women issue was undone. Um, and, and then they were essentially waiting out uh, the Moon administration and, and hoping that a, um, a leader in South Korea would come forward and, and offer a more constructive engagement. 
Um, I don't think the most optimistic person could have hoped or imagined um, a president like President Yoon stepping forward and all that he's managed to achieve in um, less than two years in office. So it, it's really been quite remarkable. I think that there is, if, if we look to Japan's national security strategy in December 2022, um, the, the, the terms in which it talked about the Republic of Korea were positive and, 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 and it was clear that there was a vision for constructive engagement, um, the, the alignment of security interests and, and, and the need for greater cooperation and so on. And I think the Camp David Agreement works very well um, in, in, in that context. So we will see now, I think, um, probably both sides, both Seoul and Tokyo now are, are inevitably looking to what's going to happen in the US presidential election in November. They will both want to embed as much of that agreement um, and as much uh, get as much momentum behind that as they can in this year. Um, I think the Japanese side on, on the question of sustainability I think they're, you know, they, they feel that they've been burned once in terms of 2015 and, and, and what happened afterwards. But there's also a recognition that that is how the South Korean presidential system works. You have a single term, five year presidency. Um, so there's nothing that can be done to change that any more than the, the uh, calendar for US presidential elections can be changed. So I, I would say there is a belief that they're they're being practical about it. They they realize they have a window of opportunity with President Yoon through to 2027. They want to make the most of that, and this year is really going to be a key year in getting all of that going. Um, so that, depending on what happens uh, in in the U.S. at the end of the year, that there will be good momentum behind that um, to take it forward in in the coming years. Yeah, I, I guess so. What what is well, I'd like to get your view on this. I mean, in Korea, for example, uh, this issue is very politicized, mm. right? I mean, you know, conservatives in general think it's a good idea. Progressives, mm. much less enthusiastic about it. Um, um, what about, I mean, the way you spoke of it, there's generally support for it. There was, people felt like they were burned Mm. by the walking back of the 2015 Comfort Woman Agreement, because that was a big agreement. Japan, yeah. you know, as someone who followed these issues very carefully in 2015, I was really surprised. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the Abe, Abe was willing to give so much in that, in that agreement. Um, but to what extent is this, is, is there any politics around this in the, in, in the Japanese system? Like how uh, e either opposition versus um, ruling party or progressives versus conservatives or conservatives versus far-right conservatives. Mm. Is there any politics surrounding these issues that could affect the sustainability of Japanese support for it? So the, there are various views, as you, as you rightly point out, um, across the spectrum. Um, the way I would see it is that the opposition is not to cooperation with South Korea so much as losing face through making compromises for the critics. So there, there, there have been several uh, critics um, sort of speaking publicly uh, around the time that the, uh, the latest um, forced labor agreement was, was being discussed about a year or so ago when it was, when it was still um, being worked out. And 
they were essentially saying, don't make any new apologies, don't make any new concessions. Kishida, thanks to President Yoon, was able to do that. Kishida really, Kishida really didn't have to give up anything significant yeah. to get yeah. that agreement. Um, so the fact that that has been achieved now, I think, means there's nothing really to object to because uh, those same right-wingers will obviously be uh, very invested in, in Japan's security and, and, and its, its defense posture and so on. And I think at this point there is a, a very clear understanding that uh, the interests with South Korea align very closely. Uh, so the, the missile threat, the North Korea, as you've said before, has moved beyond testing missiles. It is now just operationalizing and, and conducting operations. And, and almost relentlessly, we see this barrage of, of missiles landing in the Sea of Japan. Um, when those overfly um, Japan's territory and an alert goes off and, and, and people uh, are sent messages on their phone and asked to take shelter, that, that's very stressful and traumatic. I think that that is probably the, the most front of mind national security issue for the average Japanese person and, and, and I think for politicians as well. Um, looking beyond that shared interest in relation to China and its assertiveness um, and an understanding, I think, among um, politicians that crises now could be, it could easily become interconnected mm. in East Asia. Mm. Um, we could see opportuni opportunistic aggression uh, on a second front in the wake of one front opening up. So I think there's, there's generally uh, support for the, the practical elements of cooperation that will benefit Japan in terms of security cooperation. Um, that is also being uh, stretched into other areas, uh, economic security cooperation, um, and that is also, I think, clearly to the national, seen as being to the national interest in Japan as well. So I, I don't pick up on a whole lot of uh, opposition in political circles um, from the right wing. Mm -hmm. I think if we look at the popular view of things, there is a, you, you'll know this annual survey uh, that's published every year about public opinion in Japan and Korea, South Korea of each other. Um, the, the survey that was published a month or two ago in Japan found the highest ever levels of positive views towards South Korea. I mm. think on the year it had gone up seven percentage points to 37%. Those with a negative view had declined again about seven percentage points to I think 32%. This was the first year in the 10 years of this survey that there had been a net positive view of South Korea. Um, you know, 37% is in, in, in absolute terms, it doesn't sound enormous, but um, Prime Minister Kishida would love to have approval ratings of 37%. Sure. <laughs> um, so in, those, in, in that context, I think we can see among Japanese people now a, a positive view, um, a, an increasingly positive view. Uh, towards South Korea, and I think the political classes are understanding of that. Um, and so I don't really see any major problems emerging on, in, in terms of opposition to cooperation. Um, certainly with South Korea, if anything, there, I, I think there, there are greater concerns around what might happen in the US um, 12 months from now. Sure. Um, the, uh, um, your, your point about how the the uh, Kishida's willingness to work with Yuan 
um, in, in a sense, I mean, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but like it was a, it was a policy decision that was made, which didn't paint a big target on Kishida's back mm. because there was nothing that you could criticize him for giving up. Right? Mm. And, and so, you know, in that sense, it's almost like, it, it, you know, what happened in the forced labor compensation agreement and what happened in the comfort women deal are like bookends in a sense, mm -hmm. because in the 2015 agreement, um, the Korean, the Korean side, the Park government hardly gave up anything, mm. right? Uh, whereas the Abe government offered a lot of things, you know, government-related apology, the funding, all these sorts of things. And now in this forced labor compensation agreement, it was sort of reversed the other way around, where um, the Kishi government didn't have to offer much. A lot of the heavy lifting was being done by the South Korean side. So um, um, not that anybody's keeping score, but in the politics of it, right, these things are important, right? They're... Yes, let, let, let me to, let, let maybe suggest the analogy of a, a, a Nixon goes to China moment. Abe was able to achieve that agreement in 2015 because he was seen as being a hardliner. He was able to bring the, the, the hard right of the LDP with him because they didn't question his bona fides. Yeah. So when he made concessions, they were willing to accept it because they knew he was a tough guy. Um, Kishida, as you say, wasn't able to make those concessions because he was seen as a, a centrist uh, um, and uh, he he didn't have that same sway over the 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 harder line of the party but then he didn't have to make the the concessions so thankfully i think um thanks to president Yu and that particular roadblock w w was taken away um which is why we're now in in, in this kind of unprecedented position of of this close trilateral cooperation, the likes of which we really haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, let's move on to uh, uh, DPRK, North Korea. Um, so you and I have been talking about this, but when we look at at least the Japan part of this, um, you know, we have this very we have these very interesting developments um, of. Um, uh, sort of softer diplomacy. Mm. I don't know if we can call it diplomacy yet, but mm. the re news reports of uh, reciprocal soccer mm -hmm. uh, qualifying matches. And then, of course, this very unusual uh, sending of condol condolences by Kim mm. Jong-un to the prime minister about the earthquake and, uh, and, and the accident. Um, quite surprising. I didn't expect to see mm. anything like this. Um, love to get your thoughts on whether you think there's any there there. Mm. Uh, um, I can certainly, I can speculate certainly on why Kim Jong-un might have done this, but love to hear sort of how this is playing in Japan so far um, in, in terms of uh, how the people are thinking about this. Well, let me talk a little bit about the, the context to it then, and um, I'd be very interested to hear your, your thoughts on, on the why behind it from the um, North Korean perspective. Mm -hmm. um, when Kishida was, when he was running for uh, party president in September 2021, he committed to pursuing talks on this issue. Um, the, last, the last time I think there were substantive um, negotiations around it uh, were in the lead up to the 2014 Stockholm Agreement, um, which then uh, Japan was willing to, to withdraw its sanctions in return for North Korea undertaking a report on all Japanese who had been living in North Korea since the Second World War and to, to include um, abductees. Um, so when, uh, when that didn't work out, when Japan wasn't happy with the report that North Korea produced, 
uh, things t went south. Uh, Abe took a, a very hard line towards North Korea for several uh, years, uh, quite a punitive stance. And so when Kishida came into office, he did so and he, he set out his stall that he would be willing to engage on this issue, that he'd be willing to meet Kim Jong-un with no preconditions. And he also, in his statement since then, seems to have separated the issue of uh, victims of abduction from the missile and nuclear testing issues. So Kishida is not looking for a, a, a grand bargain here, a grand solution. He simply wants to focus on this issue. I think the reason it, it's become so politically salient, uh, well, we've seen it's in late 2022 is the 20th anniversary of the return of the five Japanese, or 2022 saw the return of the five Japanese uh, who were uh, released under the 2002 Pyongyang Agreement. Uh, so there, there, was, there was that. We've also seen the passing of some of the prominent elderly family members of some of the victims. So the, the issue has been in the news. There's been a realization that this is very much a time-limited issue. The Japanese government, since Abe's days, they, they really want to get some progress on this before all the parents pass away, to, to, to put it bluntly. Um, so Kishida has come in. He's, he's engaged with this issue. Now that we're into the we, and to, to, just to, to talk about the signals that we, we saw then last year some back channel discussions about this. Um, Japanese representatives were reported to be visiting Pyongyang for, for discussions about holding a summit and, and in the first half of the year and then through to the second half. So that was the context. Um, we had this unusual decision to, for the first time since before um, the COVID pandemic, to allow foreign athletes to visit. So the Japanese women's soccer team would be allowed to visit Pyongyang for a, an Olympic qualifying game on the 23rd of February. And I think you were the first person I know to kind of pick up on that as a, a signal. And then within a few days, um, with the, um, the peninsula, uh, the Noto Peninsula earthquake and the messages of the message of condolence that Kim Jong-un sent um, to the Japanese government. You were taken by surprise. The Japanese government were taken by surprise, I think. They hadn't received any message like that even after the, the March 2011 massive disaster. There, there was no message then from North Korea. I don't think anyone was really expecting uh, a telegram like that to arrive. Uh, the chief cabinet secretary, uh, uh, Hayashi, he, he, he sort of thanked, uh, I think he, he thanked um, Kim Jong-un for sending it. He, he expressed gratitude, but didn't really respond substantively. We may yet see a more substantive mm. response to that. But given that longer context of Kishida taking up the issue of back-channel discussions, and now within a short period, these two small but, but clearly positive signs, I think we can say it looks like there is some there there. We can see for Kishida with, with lacking domestic policy wiggle room, if he could achieve something on this issue, it's going to be very difficult. Obviously, there they've, there've been disappointments in the past. Um, I'm sure the Japanese government will want to get a full report on at least the 12 other cases that it's officially recognized of abductees. 
Um, where possible, I would like, I would expect they would like to see some returnees um, if, if that's possible. And they would probably also want a deeper, longer report as they expected back in 2014 regarding the full list of Japanese uh, who, who may have been abducted. And those would all be difficult things to achieve. But if Kishida could go some way towards achieving those, I think it would be very popular with the voting public at large. It would be popular within the, within the LDP and it would be particularly um, well received within the harder line right wing of, of the LDP, um, the Abe wing and, and those adjacent to it. And that would certainly benefit uh, Kishida in his party presidential re-election bid comes, come September. So I think there's, there's, there's a clear rationale for it from Kishida's perspective. There does seem to be some dynamic towards it then from Pyongyang's side. Can you enlighten us as to why that might be? Um, so I think on the you know the, on the North Green side, the more I thought about this, it would be, you know, it would be a rather, um, I wouldn't say strategic. It's a it, there, there's a tactical move here mm. for 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 North Korea. I think they're feeling pretty confident about themselves coming out of the pan, you know coming out of the failure of the Hanoi summit and the pandemic. Mm. Um, uh, for three years, and then having this big agreement with Russia that just seems to be giving North Korea more and more, who knows what, but they're getting a lot of something from Russia in return for all these munitions. Um, and that, that, you know, that improvement in Russia-North Korea relations has a follow-on effect to China in the sense that uh, the Chinese feel more compelled to engage the North Koreans because they don't want the, they don't want the North Koreans to get too close to the Russians. Mm. The Chinese always are famous for saying, oh, don't ask us to influence North Korea because we have very little influence, but then they jealously guard that influence <laughs> that they say they don't have. Um, and so uh, with, with that as a context, um, you know, the, Kim feels like he's in a pretty good place with both uh, Xi and Putin. Mm. Um, uh, and, and he, like Xi, is not very happy with this improvement in trilateral relations, you know, among the U.S., Japan, and Korea. I think both Kim and Putin rely on, or they count on, Japan-Korea relations being dysfunctional. Like mm. to them, to them, that's almost a freebie. They don't have mm. to do much to make that happen. So, an outreach to the to Japan that could slow down trilateral could that could um, uh, create some difficulty in Japan-South Korea relations, particularly with a conservative government in South Korea, he might see some opportunity in that, I think. And then also, with China and Russia, I mean, North Korea is a paranoid dictatorship, so in that sense, while they're benefiting from this very good relationship with Russia, from their perspective, a very good relationship with Russia, they're also worried about getting too close to Russia. Mm. Um, and in that sense, this this helps to counterbalance, I think. Uh, in, in, it might help, in their minds, to, counter, to counterbalance. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, you mentioned sort of the Abe, the Abe faction. Um, the fact that Abe is not around anymore. Mm. Um, I think uh, it's a personal opinion, but I think the North Koreans um, really were never very happy with Abe. Um, uh, in large part because he was part of the Pyongyang Declaration, right? Mm. He was working for Koizumi at the time and was in Pyongyang. Uh, and then after that fell through, he took a much harder line position uh, um, uh, on, on North Korea, on the abductions, on everything. And 
And so I think they always, uh, my, my sense is the North Koreans always saw Abe as an obstacle, mm. right? And now that he's not there, uh, they, may, they may see an opportunity, uh, opportunity there as well. Um, and then lastly, I think, you know, Kim Jong-un likes to, likes to believe he can look like a statesman. Mm. So sending these condolences, you know, maybe mm. part of, part of all that, uh, all that too. Um, so I could see reasons why they might pursue, um, something like this. I mean, from a Japan perspective, let's imagine they did get into some sort of discussion, you know, abductions would clearly be an issue, right? But what, like, what else would be important, do you think, from a Japan perspective in terms of what they would want from North Korea? Well, my, my feeling is that it, it's, it's possible that this could just be a limited... Um, the, the, the discussions themselves will be limited to the abductions issue. Um, the... the Carrot, I think, is um, the rumors, suggestions of humanitarian aid, potentially infrastructure aid. In the past, I think, I think going back to the Khoisan years, the figure of ten billion uh, U.S. dollars equivalent was being suggested. Um, so there, there could be a a significant carrot there um, that Kishida could bring to the table if there is. A positive development around that. I think, as a second-order effect of that, um, if relations do improve, I think then automatically there would probably be an expectation uh, that the that North Korea would maybe slow down a little bit with its missile launches. Maybe that it, it wouldn't proceed with the seventh nuclear test. Um, I'm not sure, based based on those previous uh, based on previous things that Kishida has said, I'm not sure that he would go into those discussions asking for those wider things, um, but maybe they, they would be part of the subtext. Mm. I think the, the other issue when, when I think about this that comes to mind is assuming, you know, getting to the point of having a summit would be an achievement for Kishida. Um, you know, it's been, what, 20, more than 20 years now since, since the, the previous summit. That in itself would, would, would be an achievement. Um, that's really only the start of the journey and um, the difficulties of securing an agreement negotiating with the North Koreans. I think you, Victor, will know better than any of us how challenging that will be. Um, then if an agreement is reached, getting that implemented and, and uh, fulfilled w will be another element. But even assuming all of that happens, the two questions um, come to my mind. One, how would Washington and Seoul respond to that if and and we know that relations now that uh, the, the new York, the new year statements um from pyongyang um were very harsh uh, towards south korea and, and, and things seem to be um going from bad to worse in in that respect um and there's really certainly an, an election year there's there's no outlook for diplomatic ties i think improving between the us and north korea how would those two partners respond to Japan playing nice with North Korea, with potentially handing over $10 billion um, of humanitarian and infrastructure aid? Uh, let's hypothesize. Um, will that get in the way of the Camp David um, agreement, the, the, the missile uh, defense data sharing uh, agreement has just gone into effect in December? Uh, we have coming up, um, I 
think the Department of Defense announced the first of the named uh, trilateral joint military exercises will happen early this year, so that could be um, perhaps around March or so. As these steps are all being taken on the, uh, in, within the trilateral framework, um, if Japan starts going off in a different direction and playing nice with North Korea, how will that be seen? That's one question. I think the other question in my mind relates to Ukraine because Japan has been very uh, keen to stand with Ukraine. We had this remarkable image of uh, Kishida traveling, taking a, a, a train at the break of dawn to Kyiv um, to meet President Zelensky back in, I think it was about February, March time last year. Um, and then um, President Zelensky returned the favor and visited Hiroshima and, and that very striking image of the two of them standing together in the Peace Park um, and, and, and the, the uh, subtext of, of, of the threat of nuclear weapons and so on. And even today, I mean, I think in the past week, um, the Japanese foreign minister, um, uh, Kamikawa-san, uh, mm -hmm. ka ka <laughs> can we cut that part? Kamikawa-kawa-kami. Uh, um, she was in, uh, she was visiting Kyiv, and um, there is also coming up now in February in Tokyo a an international conference about the redevelopment of post-war Ukraine that's going to be hosted by the Japanese government in Tokyo. And um, there is clearly a, a, a strong connection there, and um, there is clearly a desire for that to be a, a good and positive relationship going forward. Imagine now that Japan starts giving aid and food and, and, and so on to North Korea at a time when North Korea is becoming one of the main suppliers of munitions to Russia in its, in its war efforts in Ukraine. I'm wondering how those two elements yeah. tie together and is that going to be problematic um, as, a, as a second order effect um, for Japan, for Kishida, if, if he gets to the point where he actually secures some agreement. So this is, this is a complicated issue. I'm sure no one expects it to be easy. Um, it's not any easier than it was in the past. And, and um, I think there will be a lot of moving parts in this that, that will be under consideration if we get to the point of a summit. Yeah, very interesting, uh, particularly that last part, quite interesting, because there could be, hypothetically, things that are quite beneficial to Kishida and to Japan domestically, uh, but what they would have to give for that could certainly complicate Camp David and complicate Ukraine mm. um, uh, very substantially. So, um, of course, this is all conjecture. The good thing about uh, think tank world is we can conject, mm. make conjectures all that we want, and then we can come back together in a couple of months and revisit mm. the issue to see how right or wrong we are. Um, so uh, anyway, it's, uh, James, it's been a pleasure to have you on The Impossible State. I hope you will come back and we can uh, revisit some of these issues as well as um, the, uh, the Kishida standing in the state of the Japanese economy. So. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to, to speak with you. I uh, would be delighted to to come back and, and chat some more. And there will be, as you say, plenty of events unfolding in, in the course of this year to, to discuss. So uh, plenty to, to get stuck into. That's Thank right. You, yeah. And many elections too. many elections. This is the year of elections 2024 in Asia. Right. Jap yeah. Japan is uh, is one of the few countries that doesn't have a major uh, scheduled election. So, well, that could change, of course, with, right. if there's a snap election. But um, yes, yeah. yeah, lots lots going on there. 
Great. Um, well, thanks, James. And thank you to all our viewers and listeners for our first episode of 2024 on The Impossible State. We look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks uh, for our next episode. Thanks again. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate@csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean Peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.